This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Oh, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. I can't remember if I mentioned last week, uh, so just in case, uh, the television version of this program, The Conspiracy Show, which airs across Canada on Vision TV, is now, as of middle, May, middle of May, it's now available in the United States on Destination America. Uh, which is part of the Discovery Channel. Uh, so we're very, very excited about that. The first nine episodes aired in a marathon uh, earlier this month, sort of back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back episodes. Uh, so uh, I'm sure they'll be playing those nine episodes again. In the meantime, Season 3, 13 brand-new episodes coming to Vision TV this fall. But this is the radio version. No pictures, just sound. And thank you for your ears. Uh, the good Dr. George Chinescu. I, this is stunning. I have to share this with you and just take a few moments. It's, it's that important. Uh, George Chinescu, who hosts Big Band Sunday Night, which is the program preceding the conspiracy show here in our mothership station, AM740 in Toronto. George is a dear friend and a mentor. Uh, after all, he's been in radio for about 65 years, so I think I could pick up a few things from good old George. Uh, however, um, last week... I come into the studio, and George tells me in a very nonchalant manner, which is his way, that he's just been diagnosed with stomach cancer. And I was uh, thrown for a little bit of a loop uh, because I don't want to lose George. And, uh, I mean, I was crestfallen. And I, I, I asked, I said, George, what is the prognosis? And he sort of brushed it off the way he always does uh, these things. And he says, hell, I'm 80. I've had a pretty good run. Now, when someone says that to you, I've had a pretty good run. To me, that says the prognosis is not good. Uh, and, and George has been in some uh, discomfort, never mentioned a, a word of it to me, for the last three months, excruciating pain in his abdominal area. And then he just got this diagnosis, which was dire, uh, to say the least. So, hell, I'm 80. I've had a good run. Uh, so I told George, I said... Uh, you know, I'll be praying for you, and I know that doesn't mean a lot to some of you, or when someone says, I'm praying for you, or I'll be thinking of you, uh, most of you, I, I won't say most of you, many of you may say, well, is that all? 
you know, you're going to pray for me. Uh, but it means something to me, and, and I know it meant something to George, which is why I told him that, and I did pray for him. But the other thing that I did was I immediately emailed um, another friend, a mutual friend, and that is Douglas James Cottrell, who has been on this program countless times. Douglas is considered Canada's Edgar Casey. He's a remote viewer. Uh, he's a medical intuitive and, uh, and a healer. Uh, and I emailed uh, Douglas. I said, can you come into studio and do a laying on of hands? Uh, George has stomach cancer. And uh, Douglas said, well, I'm in Spain right now, and I'm here until the end of the month. But when I get back, I'll certainly do that. But in the meantime, Douglas says via email, in the meantime, I will send out some healing intention and some healing energy to, to uh, George's way. All right, so that was last week. A couple of days ago, I got an email, and uh, George is saying, I, I'm going back to the doctor. They're going to uh, run some tests again. And I believe he said, I don't have the email in front of me. I, th I think they were going to do the biopsy over again. So, update. I come in tonight, and there's a George behind the uh, the audio board looking even more chipper than usual. And he's laughing. And I said, George, what's going on? How do you feel? He looked at me and he said, I am pain-free for the first time in three months. I went back to the doctor. They ran some tests. I just got the results. There's no cancer. In fact, there probably wasn't any cancer. Or at least... What they thought was cancer is no longer cancer. I don't know what to tell you. He doesn't have cancer. And he's pain-free for the first time in three months. So, hey, I don't know. Uh, my prayers, all of your prayers, uh, Douglas James Cottrell's healing intention all the way from Spain, whatever, whatever happened. Uh, what do you want to call it? A medical miracle. Why not? Why not? And that's not the first time that's happened to George Genescu. Uh I've talked to you on this program before about this. Uh, I, I won't do it now, but another time. When we bring Douglas James Cottrell in, and he will be in uh, after the end of the month, we'll get, he'll, he'll come in and, and he's going to do a, a laying on of hands on good old Dr. George anyway because George is 80. And uh, in George's own words, <laughs> I'm a wreck, he, he, uh, he, he admits. So um, just just to be on the safe side, we'll do another uh, healing for uh, – George Chinescu. Anyway, I'm elated. Great news. I'm over the moon, in fact. Anyway, uh, and now that we've dispensed with our medical miracle, uh, let's move on to other matters. Uh, last September 2013, there was an expose based on the leaks of Edward Snowden, hero slash turncoat. I don't know. You make up your own mind. To me, in my books, he's a hero. Anyway, he revealed, of course, that the National Security Agency has now developed methods to crack online encryption, which are used to protect every online activity you can think of, emails, banking, your medical records. And encryption is really the system that, that lets the Internet function as an important commercial instrument, instrument all around the world. And uh, Glenn Greenwald of the, uh, of the Guardian, of course, who in conjunction with Snowden made these uh, – mind-blowing revelations about the National Security Agency. At least Greenwald was Snowden's conduit. Let's put it that way. Anyway, Greenwald then collaborated with the New York Times and uh, an organization called ProPublica. Uh, and um, this expose is really what has informed us as to the, the lengths that the NSA has gone uh, 
uh, to invade our privacy, our online privacy. And so I thought, we need to talk about this. I mean, I don't know about you, but I practically, I live online. I work constantly online via email. And the Snowden revelations and the Greenwald uh, uh, expose really put the fear of God in me, quite frankly. Almost to the point where I'm thinking, man, I, I should just unplug. But maybe not, maybe not yet. Maybe it's, it's not too late uh, to give up. Uh, but is privacy dead online? Has the horse bolted the barn? That's where we're going for the, uh, the next 45 minutes or so. Mark Weinstein is a leading online privacy advocate and the CEO founder of a social network company called sgruples.com, or sgruples.com, if you will. He's the privacy blogger for CNN and the Huffington Post, as well as a steering committee member of National Strategy for the White House Initiative Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. He's been also named Ambassador of Privacy by Design by Ontario's Information and Privacy Commissioner Mark Weinstein. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, sir? Richard, thank you very much. Uh, I'm great. Great to be here. Uh, it's an important topic. Can you hear me okay? I can indeed. Great. Okay. All right, listen, what, what a huge conversation. It's part of our lives. This is going to be part of our lives, possibly for the foreseeable future, you know, possibly for decades. Um, and it flies right in the face of the founding fathers of the United States, the founding, you know, principles of democracy that, you know, law-abiding citizens have the right to privacy. Okay, tell me first before we, we, uh, we talk about how our privacy is being uh, invaded, eroded on a daily basis. Let's talk about this social network company uh, that you founded. Uh, now, is it, is it sgruples.com? Or is, how, how do we, how do we pronounce that? It's actually called scruples. Scruples, okay. Scruples, because it's a play on the English word scruples. Right. Now, this, the way we spell it is S-G-R-O-U-P-L-E-S dot com. Um, and, of course, uh, it's about doing the right thing. It's about having integrity. And we really would like to say, imagine the Internet with scruples. Hard to imagine. <laughs> so, and, you know, really... It's, it, the Snowden conversation is fascinating, um, regardless of what our listeners think about Snowden, because what he did is he let us know what was happening, you know, for real. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that before, you know, Snowden revealed that the NSA was spying on us, um, you know, what was happening and still happens to this day is that Facebook and Google and Yahoo and, you know, all these companies are spying on us. Um, and, and gathering data about us. They can predict the length of our relationships. You know, there's Google Glass now that can identify who we are, where we are, whenever we are. Um, you know, Google just bought a company called Nest, which, you know, is like the thermostats and controls for inside your house. They're going to know everything about us. This has gone too far. Oh, yes. And, and I mean, it does go back. I mean, let's let's face it. Even with credit card purchases, uh, uh, advertisers can know uh, a great deal about us. I, but for me, it's one thing for that information to be to be used for marketing purposes. And maybe I'm being naive uh, so that they know what kind of razor I like and, and uh, you know, what, what my ideal travel um, travel destination is and so forth for marketing purposes, because I'm a 
I'm an avowed capitalist. Uh, but it's another thing for government agencies uh, to have that kind of information. Am I being naive in making that distinction? Absolutely. Uh, with all due respect, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you are, and we'll talk about why, because there's something called the wisdom of privacy. But let, let's, uh, you know, just sort of paint the picture of what, how scruples is different, because there's something we call a privacy bill of rights. And one of the issues, Richard, is that um, with the perspective that you just p- presented, which is really an understandable one, what's missing is the context about what privacy has always meant. Um, because privacy and, and its scruples, we have a privacy bill of rights on our homepage, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, Ann Kevorkian of Ontario, of the Ontario government, has given me this really wonderful award as Privacy by Design Ambassador, um, because really, your personal information is your business. It's, it's different if you choose to make a purchase you know, with your credit card than if you tell your friends uh, let, let's go to the bar tonight and have a beer, or I'm worried about my father. He has you know, prostate cancer, and all of a sudden you're getting ads about you know, either beer or something, you know, medical, you know, uh, something about prostate cancer. These are, this is all private, and the invasion of privacy has really gotten out of control. So at Scruples, we have this thing called the Privacy Bill of Rights because people have to rediscover. What does privacy mean? It means your personal information and your content are private. Facebook owns your content as well as you know. That doesn't make sense to us. You know, it doesn't make sense to us that, you know, Facebook and Google are doing all those things. We're private networks. That means that we don't track you. You don't have to make money by tracking people. Um, you know, your privacy means your information is not shared with anyone. Okay, and let me just uh, jump in here, yeah. Mark. We've got the music uh, coming up, so we'll take a time out, come back on the other side. Great. A leading online privacy advocate and the CEO founder of a social network company called Scruples.com. Mark Weinstein, my guest, protecting your online privacy. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. So over the last six months, you've heard a lot about how uh, Google is violating its users' trust and privacy from reading every single word of every single email sent to or from your Gmail account uh, to replacing real shopping search results with paid ads to sharing your personal information with app developers to monetizing the web searches that kids do in school. And Google has made a mission out of invading your privacy to commercialize your most personal information. So you'd think after all of that coming to light, Google would apologize, right? Wrong. They did just the opposite. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago rather, in an official response to a class action lawsuit accusing Google of illegally reading Gmail's users' private messages, Google said that, quote, Just as a sender of a letter to a business colleague cannot be surprised that the recipient's assistant opens the letter, people who use web-based email today cannot be surprised if their communications are processed by the recipient's ECS provider in the course of delivery. Indeed, quote, a person has no legitimate expectation of privacy and information he voluntarily turns over to third parties, end quote. You heard that correctly. Mark Weinstein is our privacy online expert tonight. And, uh, Mark, your jaw must have hit the floor when you heard that. Or maybe you, were, you, you weren't surprised at all. <laughs> you know, um, 
I wasn't surprised, and it's still so incredible. You know, uh, for our listeners, you know, Google is a company that claims to do no evil. And here's what we all want to remember. Any company that, that has a motto of do no evil, isn't there something wrong with that motto? I mean, how about, you know, do great in the world or, you know, bring, bring value to, to, to life. But do no evil is their motto, and for sure. Look, a Wall Street Journal uh, investigative reporter looked at what Google knows about him, and he, what he found out, this is what he found out, Google knows all 134,966 emails in his account, every word, everything, they've aggregated all the topics. They know everyone, who every one of his contacts is, 2,700. They know every YouTube video he's ever watched, 9,220. They know all his passwords. They know all his documents and every word in them. So, you know, they know the 64,019 searches he's done and what the topics are, and they've aggregated that into a packet. And that's what the NSA gets when they go in the back door of Google. And that's what's wrong. And they have that same information on all of us then. Right, exactly. If you're using Google. Now, there is a company called DuckDuckGo.com. Uh, it's a search engine that doesn't track you, doesn't aggregate information. There's another one called StartPage.com. Um, and this is also the same kind of things that Facebook knows about us. And, you know, listen, that's the thing is we, we click that tab that says Agree to Terms and Conditions because who's got the time to read 30 pages of legalese when we just want the service, and that's how they get us. Uh, now I'm a I'm a Gmail user, so I'm uh, I'm probably going to have my my wrist slapped on the air here tonight by you. Uh, is that the first mistake? You know, not not to use Gmail. Well, you know, um, it's just one of many when you look at, and it's not a mistake, right? Because look, uh, first of all, I always encourage everybody we participate in society. You know, the internet is great. This is why I'm you know building my second large social media company. I'm one of the founders of social media online. I built one of the first great ones back in 1998. It's so amazing. But what we want to do are choose companies that respect us and, and that we can trust and that are in partnership with us and treat us as customers. Now that point, Richard, is very interesting because actually we're not the customer at Google and we're not the customer at Facebook. But as consumers, we didn't realize that. We're the product. We're the product. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And listen, I am a great capitalist, too. I love capitalism. I love democracy. What an amazing opportunity we have, you know, in North America to live the dream of, you know, really inventing and creating your life and your business. Um, but that, you know, there's a way to do that. It's called conscious capitalism, you know, you know doing well by doing good. You know, adding value uh, without doing this creepy stuff. So uh, you said that there are certain, you know, there are alternatives, obviously, to Google. But how do we know who we can trust? How do we know that these other companies haven't given the backdoor encryption code to the NSA or CIA? I mean, how, how can we be sure? Well, let's, listen, let's talk about encryption. Uh, first of all, Google's not encrypted, and Scruple's not encrypted. But the backdoor is interesting because, you know, uh, l let's just make sure our listeners know about the NSA and the RSA. The RSA sets encryption standards, and it's an independent group. But the NSA set the encryption standards for the RSA. This is, you can, you can uh, forgive the expression, but Google this or go to StartPage or DuckDuckGo. And so, you know, the NSA can crack encryption. So encryption isn't really the solution right now, not until it gets better. Um, it's, you know, it's, 
it's a way to protect from corporate espionage and other things, but don't think you're encrypting something and keeping it from the NSA. So the key is it starts your first line of offense is to use providers that don't spy on you. And how can you tell? Well, at Scruples, we're about to launch what we call the Scruples Challenge because we don't have any tracking cookies inside our site. And you can tell by measuring it. There's companies like Disconnect.com or DoNotTrack.com. You know, you can launch these companies and see how many trackers you have. And listen, here's a mind-blowing statistic for our listeners. Facebook is tracking us at 1,200 of the top 2,500 websites used in North America. I mean, get that, everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a member of Facebook. They're tracking you and us at half the websites that we use, not just Facebook. Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, listen, I, I I don't know if this is something that you you want to get into, but I mean, do you think that that Facebook was in part a creation of the National Security Agency or some of these alphabet intelligence groups? Um, here's what I can tell you: um, I believe that there's some documentation, and we're researching it, that Facebook may indeed have been invested in by the CIA's uh, investment arm. The CIA has an investment arm. Um, I think they've buried this, but there were early articles about it. I do believe that uh, early in uh, the advancement of Facebook that they did take uh, CIA money. Um, And again, I'm saying I believe this. Uh, We're researching it right now. I've seen uh, data on this. I've seen articles about it. So uh, it it could very well be that the uh, the CIA has been in the back door all the time. How else are they tracking us online? We we hear these horror stories about them being able to activate your webcam without you you even knowing it. Well, you know, this is where, uh, you know, for for our listeners... Um, strangely enough, you know, when you look at, so what browser should I use, which is an interesting question. Um, and, you know, Google Chrome is actually pretty good at keeping those viruses that, that get in and steal and hijack your computer out. Uh, but Firefox, is, which, and you go to Mozilla and download Firefox, um, Firefox is really good also at, because Firefox isn't spying on you and, and blocking some of these. Now, this raises the question of, you know, do you really want to buy a new Samsung TV with a camera in it? And, and the answer is no. So we've got to start to be smarter about the purchases that we're making. Um, I do believe it's possible for, you know, uh, you're just like it's possible for, you know, someone to hijack your computer. We're seeing this problem right now where, you know, bad guys are hijacking personal and business computers and holding them for ransom, uh, and people are having to pay. They, they, they send an encryption, uh, you know, uh, algorithm into the computer basically locks up the whole thing and you get this evil message that says you know we've got your computer here are the here are the instructions on how you can pay us so right this uh, is the new piracy on the high seas it's yeah. all virtual uh, I mean but these are uh, these are sort of organized uh, groups of, of criminals we're talking about which is also a concern we also have to be mindful of that I guess I'm I'm sort of uh, focused on on uh, these alphabet agencies, intelligence agencies, and, and other government bodies that are poking around. I, I don't know why it, that I have I have greater concern about those when I should also be paying attention, as you say, you know, to the the, the, the marketers and the and these other you know criminal cabals that are after uh, my information. Uh, which do you think is the greatest threat of those three? Um, well, you know, when we're talking about privacy. Uh, you know, first of all, and I guess we should let, uh, because, you know, we go across the border with the show, um, because healthcare.gov, you know, Obamacare, healthcare.gov has 
clauses in their privacy policy that says this. I'm reading a direct quote from their privacy policy. If you have an account with a third-party website and choose to like, friend, follow, or comment, uh, then certain personal information associated with your account may be made available to healthcare.gov based on the privacy policy of the third-party website and your privacy settings within that website. So healthcare.gov is also, and here's another clause right from healthcare.gov, healthcare.gov sometimes collects and uses your personally identifiable information if you made it available through third-party websites. So, you know, it's, it's not just the NSA that we need to be concerned about. it. It's even just like things like healthcare.gov, and, um, and really it's the question of, are we entitled to pr- be private? Does, does the United States government, the Canadian government, need to know who my friends are because that's what they're looking at, whether I'm going out for a beer tonight, what my personal habits are, just like... Credit card companies are looking at who your friends are, and now they're, give, they're approving or disapproving of your credit based on who your friends are, not your credit history. So the answer is you should be worried about formal government agencies um, spying, and you should be worried about companies like you know, Google and Facebook because they're the ones that are the information providers and the collectors. And you should be worried about data brokers that 60 Minutes talked about a few weeks ago uh, that have 1,500 points of data on over 200 million people in North America. Um, and, you know, you should have an antivirus uh, uh, service, you know, like Norton Utilities or something on your computer because the bad guys are out there. Now, you're a steering committee member of a National Strategy for the White House Initiative, Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. So, I mean, are you like if I can flip this old uh, uh, metaphor around here, are you the, are you the hen in the fox house? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, and that committee has now been privatized. What that committee was doing, and I was very concerned about it, um, this is a very good question. That, that committee was of volunteers from the industry um, about how we could come up with a universal system, a way to, uh, to identify to validate our identities when we were, went to a website or made a purchase uh, and somehow protected that information. Um, and that, they, um, that group then uh, put together, there were some grants from the government trying to come up with systems. So there are companies developing systems, national systems, where we would have like, you know, like a passport for identifying us, a social security number for identifying us online that validates who we are. And I'm also very concerned about those systems. Because, you know, again, it's a whole new database that can be hacked uh, and personal information about me can be gotten. So I was really an outspoken uh, critic uh, concerned about these big, you know, national government initiatives to identify every person in North America and who they are when they're online. Uh, I'm wondering if whether... Uh, scruples ha- has has come under any any pressure. I mean, there are other social networks out there and internet service providers that have been basically uh, forced to shut down because they wouldn't either comply or or play ball with these intel groups who who again wanted access to uh, I don't know whether you call it a you know a back door or they wanted to be able to. Uh, 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 to data mine, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the members of that social network and so forth? Has Grupals come under any, any pressure that way? No, 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 and I'll tell you why. Because I'm a law-abiding citizen, I love democracy, and I really love, you know, how our governments work to protect us. I think they do that very well. 
I have nothing against law enforcement. At Scruples, we're really clear in our terms of service that you cannot, you know, it's right, there's a list of what you cannot do at Scruples, you know, violate any law regulation, uh, you know, uh, you know, you can't post anything that's unlawful, harmful, obscene, you can't bully, intimidate, or harm another user. I'm reading this right from our, you know, you can't post content that's hateful, threatening, harmful, incites violence, or contains graphic or gratuitous violence. Um, you know, this, we are for law-abiding citizens. And, you know, we just don't aggregate information about our members. We're not tracking them at all, so we don't have anything to hand over to the government. And if, you know, the, the system, you know, the judicial systems in Canada and, and the United States work, so if law enforcement came to scruples with a warrant, with a bona fide warrant, uh, and had, therefore, the rights to, you know, to get information about a member, we would have to comply. If they came and asked us without a warrant, of course we don't comply. Um, because we believe in the law-abiding citizens and, and the legal judicial process. So, but you know, if you're not, if if you're a lawbreaker, scruples is not for you. No, no, I understand that. I'm, I'm, and I'm not. What I'm worried about is not the, it's not the, uh, the, the warrant for one individual, because they're using something entirely different now. I mean, it, they're they're doing these warrantless searches, or they're it's it's one warrant for all of your information, and uh, and they're we going seen to be anything like that. Uh, Richard had scruples. I wouldn't expect to, um, you know, and uh, we would contest something like that, you know, and it, it wouldn't get, get past, uh, you know, we'd go straight to the courts on something like that. Good, good, because you know the companies have been shut down because they've refused to, to play ball that way. Well, you know, uh, I'm, well, let's, let's talk about that. We can speak to who? That was Lavabit? Yes. yes. Uh, and, um, you know, I know, I know Lamar, uh, the founder and CEO, and, you know, remember, they were an encrypted private email service. Um, and I actually wrote an article uh, about, uh, you know, what he did and, and how they did it. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I mean, that, you know, Scruples isn't designed to, to sort of to be an FU to law enforcement. I got Scruples it. is designed for people to use social media, have a great time, not screw up their jobs, not ruin their relationships because they posted something to the world that the world should never see. You can't post to the world at Scruples. Okay. You can post to your family, your friends, your coworkers, everybody that you know. Their friends can't ever see what you're doing. Okay, I've got to take a time out here. Life. All right, uh, we'll come back and uh, pick up on that point. Mark Weinstein is with us, and he is the CEO and founder of Scruples.com, an online privacy expert. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Mark Weinstein is with us, a leading online privacy advocate and the CEO founder of a social network company called Scruples.com. That's capital S. Or we don't have to spell it with capitals, it's, but it's S-G-R-O-U-P-L-E-S.com. And he's also the privacy blogger for CNN and the Huffington Post. Uh, what are some of the the, 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 the most common mistakes uh, people make re- relating to security and privacy, the most common mistakes people make online, Mark? Um, we hear this a lot. It's passwords, right? You hear the, the uh, thing about passwords. Um, so, you know, everybody really, you've got to differentiate your passwords. You've got to change them regularly. Uh, and contrary to popular beliefs, you shouldn't store your passwords on your computer. And I don't really believe you should store your passwords with a password storage service. I think you need to write them down and put them somewhere where you know where they are. Um, that's a big one. You know, so, you know, you can turn off your geolocation feature. 
Um, you know, it's sort of classic think before you post. Check your friends list, you know, at those social media sites that, you know, maybe you shouldn't be at anymore. Anyhow, uh, be careful about linking accounts. Don't link accounts. Um, you know, and don't use your Facebook uh, or uh, Twitter credentials to log into a whole bunch of websites. Somebody, you know, hacks that, they got it. Um, also, don't be afraid to use social media. Be, you know, I mean, just you know, be be smart online. Um, use use the right browser. So, like I said, you know, strangely, Chrome, while they're spying on you, they're pretty good at filtering out the um, the bad guys, the criminals that can come in and infect your computer and hijack your computer. But Firefox is really the uh, browser of choice. And use DuckDuckGo for your search engines, and use Scruples.com for social media. So and you know, that's, that's um, Richard, really, that's what you've got to do. You know, we're looking, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, who's, gonna, who's investing, you know, like in Facebook, did they take CIA money? Probably. Uh, we had a guy talk to us once, said, oh, the Homeland Security might want to invest in you guys. And I looked at him like, you're crazy, right? Um, so, you know, highly qualified investors interested in privacy are welcome to contact me. Um, you know, use our site. Um, you know, we're doing the right thing. You know, we're bringing privacy back to the world on social media, on the Internet, where everybody's concerned about it. Now, uh, what about when you're making purchases online? I know a lot of people, even in this day and age, are still very nervous about that, despite the fact that, you know, uh, commerce online is just, it's going, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive the box stores out of business. Everybody's doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, listen, you know, you've got to be active. And look, we're so busy, right? So it's convenient to go to Amazon or to go you know, to, to an online store and make a purchase. Here's what I tell people, and you don't hear this too often. Get yourself a PayPal account, and therefore just have one credit card over at PayPal, and that's your extra line of protection. So you're never actually typing in your credit card so that, you know, if there's a virus on your computer, it can capture the number. Uh, it, that can never happen. Uh, and you always have that extra line of defense in addition to the protection that your credit card uh, company is giving you, the PayPal company is giving it to you also. So do something like that. Be smart. Now, uh, I'm uh, the host of a, a program called The Conspiracy Show. So some of the emails that I send out when I'm looking for, for guests and so forth, you know, there are some, I'm, I often wondered, you know, how thick they, the dossier is they have on me just based on the emails I send. Because an email, I, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm sending out all those buzzwords, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm sending an email, it, right? Yeah, just an, an email to an author say, I'd like to talk about 9-11 or I'd like to talk about, you know, uh, uh, terrorist groups and so forth. So – you know, uh, uh, should we be cautious about the language that we use in our emails? See, this is where, and this is actually what happened. So Facebook, the Facebook era gave us the sense of being uncensored, and there's something called after the ecstasy in the laundry. And today, everybody on Facebook, it's all baloney anyhow, right? Everybody's putting their best picture forward. Everybody's, you know, if you believe the Facebook story about people, everybody's life is amazing. So the answer is, you know, censor yourself where you should be censored. If you have a Gmail account, you know, Google's reading it, and, you know, censor it. Censor yourself. You know, go to scruples. Go to places where you can be yourself, because privacy is important. And remember, so I wrote an article in the Huffington Post about the wisdom of privacy. Privacy is really important for our genius, for our creativity. It's much more than, oh, I have nothing to hide. It's really about culture. It's really about we don't want Big Brother watching us. Well, you know, I always say we all have something to hide. I mean, we all have things that are, and legitimately so. Why shouldn't we be allowed to hide things? Uh, and and but you don't, 
you don't you, you get the sense when you talk to to, to people of a certain demographic. Uh, an age group that that doesn't matter to them anymore, and that's what has me really worried. And I'm wondering if that might be what's driving this. You know, you walk into uh, these uh, IT companies, or even the, you know the, the the people with a lot of these social network companies. They are they are young young people, and and they don't necessarily even have a sense of what privacy means. I have means. good news for you, Richard. I have good news for you. It's so so you know those kids, right? They, they grew up without privacy, but the kids right behind them. So the kids that are 10 to 15 today, they are totally on top of this issue. The world is changing. You check out a 10-year-old, they do not want to be public. They're creeped out by it. You know, their older brothers or sisters did it or their parents did it. They want their privacy. This is changing. The beginning, the privacy revolution has started. Oh, that's good news. the generation's taking it. That is good news. All right, Mark, we'll be back. One more segment remaining with Mark Weinstein. Hey, if you've got a question, the lines are now available to you. And we'll discuss protecting your online privacy right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Hey, welcome back. A few moments remain with Mark Weinstein, who is a leading online privacy advocate, the privacy blogger for CNN and The Huffington Post. And um, he is the CEO and founder of Scruples.com, and that's a play on words. It's not scruples as in morals. Uh, it's scruples as in S-G-R-O-U-P-L-E-S, scruples.com. And uh, if you go onto the richardserrett.com website under tonight's show and just click on Mark's name, Mark Weinstein, we've uh, linked to uh, his website there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about... Uh, whether this goes back to the origin of the Internet and, and um, uh, the early stages, which was essentially, I believe, a product of DARPA, and whether maybe this was their intention all along. This was the fur line trap. Mark, what do you think? Well, you know, um, remember, the web, there's, uh, you know, there's Tim Berners-Lee, uh, a, a great, uh, you know, freedom, you know, advocate, privacy advocate, who really was the founder of the World Wide Web, uh, and he talked about us on March 25th. He was interviewed at the 25-year uh, anniversary of the web. And, you know, he, Tim only mentioned one company, Scruples, when he inter- was interviewed on CNET, talking about the future of the web and what the work is, is still to do. Um, and, so, and I was there early in 1998. I built one of the first social networks in the world. So, you know, really, we weren't, we weren't spying on people then. That wasn't the idea. The idea was to use communication to give a, you know give people a great experience, um, but um, you know the Facebook era. You know, remember, I do think that you know, and this is the controversy. You know, the the show, um, and I, I really do think that Facebook has an investment from the CIA, and I we're looking to verify that. Uh, we're now in the age of, um, and wars now are fought in an entirely different way. Here we are in the 100th anniversary of World War I, trench warfare, and now it's being fought online. We have cyber warfare. We have currency wars, of course, but now we have this thing called cyber warfare. Uh, is, is that an area that, that um, uh, that's, you know, sort of a, um, an area of concern for you, how, how uh, the Internet is being used for sabotage, for example? You can send a virus down uh, down. Uh, the pipe online and, and uh, take out somebody's nuclear power plant or uh, I mean, is, is, is that something that we really need to be worried about in the, in, in the coming years? 
Look, this is absolutely something we need to be worried about. Also, you know, the hackers, we know that, uh, you know, look, uh, the Obama administration just did something really bold, which was indict, uh, you know, Chinese military leaders, though we have no chance of prosecuting them. But at least instead of sweeping it under the rug, we said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, and the reason they did this is, you know, I've seen guys in Silicon Valley who can show. I was at, at the lobbying at Congress. We were talking to the Senate Commerce Committee saying, please do something. We can show the day that the Chinese hackers came in, hacked a friend of mine's company, took his code and, and replicated it and built a company in, in uh, China just using his codes, the identical company. So the risk of military secrets, the risk of corporate secrets, um, I think this is really, you know, and, and it, so it's classic. Really, it's classic just in the history of time. It's good guys versus the bad guys. What other developments uh, in terms of uh, the, the erosion or the destruction of online privacy have you concerned? Is there new, new technology? Is there a, a new piece of software that uh, uh, either these criminals have or these marketers have that, that has you particularly worried? Well, if you look at uh, facial recognition and this deep facial recognition, the ability to identify us in any picture that's posted anywhere on the web, Facebook is working on what they call deep facial recognition. So everybody, don't believe Facebook's new initiative on privacy. It's a bunch of malarkey. Uh, what they're really doing is developing their new deep facial recognition system and encouraging, you know, tracking us as far and deep as they can, uh, and also Google Glass. You know, when you look at Google Glass, and you look at facial recognition, when you're going to walk into a store or a restaurant, and they're, they're, they're going to have a camera that's going to be able to identify you, even if you've never been in there before. Um, this has gone too far. It's getting too creepy. And remember, technology doesn't have a conscience. Technology is amoral. So, you know, we've, we've got to start to rein this in and make judgments about what's okay and what's not. Well, the other thing that concerns me, uh, um, I, I mean, I, I, I think they've got facial uh, recognition technology uh, already operating at the airports because uh, I've, I've talked to friends who have told me things about, you know, being, being recognized and being asked questions uh, without even handing over any identification and so forth. And, uh, you know, that old saying that they, whatever they have is probably 50 years beyond our wildest imagination. It probably True, some of that stuff, right? So, so this is where this is why I said the privacy revolution is starting now. Um, you know, we do have laws to protect us, uh, and we have got to get those laws enforced. We're going to have to take it back. Um, there's look, all these things about the NSA we didn't know, all the, their ability to uh, listen to phone conversations around the world of anybody at any time, which is, it makes you wonder where's that airplane, right? You know, oh, yes. We talked a lot about that, for sure. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Mr. Shosen, where's that airplane if we've got all this great technology? Um, so, um, and so, so people have to fight back. We have to start, and then we'll learn more. My understanding from uh, you know, Mr. Greenwald is that in the next uh, six to ten weeks, we're going to get a whole other basket of revelations out of uh, the Snowden files. Well, I, I remember at the end of 2013, Washington Times uh, ran a, a piece, uh, sort of a summing up of the year that was, and uh, they said, 2013, uh, the year that proved your paranoid friend is right. And uh, I think 2014 is going to be more of the same. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you um, about uh, this 
here's another rumor that's floating out there that uh, the government, the U.S. government or some, again, some intel group is working on or they have in their possession some sort of a kill switch for the Internet. Uh, and we're hearing a lot about, uh, you know, the the uh, the loss of not only privacy online, but also freedom of expression online and how, you know, websites and things will be shut down and there'll be uh, this, you know, this sort of fairness doctrine imposed over what has been really a bastion of, of, of freedom and, and, and freedom of expression. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, first of all, think that the government has this kill switch? Uh, I don't think the government has this kill switch. Um, and I know uh, Mother Jones reported the the secret plan, um, and um, you know the uh, Electronic Privacy Information Center did some reports on it. Um, I think what what we want to be careful of today is this whole thing about net neutrality. Uh, and in the United States, the uh, Federal Communications Commission deciding that maybe there's a way for some companies to pay for bigger and broader access to the web. Um, and that's dangerous because we've got to keep the web free. We've got to keep, you know, give companies access to it. This is important for freedom of the world. We can't let, you know, a company like Facebook or Google buy the big pipe and shut small companies out. Um, so we do have to be careful about this. Um, and there's this rumor about the Department of Homeland Security, you know, has a plan. And it wouldn't surprise me if someone said, let's create, let's make a plan. But I don't think they have any idea how to actually do it without shutting down the whole power grid, really, in the world. All right, let's go to the phones. And uh, Tony is in Brampton, Ontario. Tony has a question about facial recognition. Welcome, Tony. Hi, Richard. Uh, yes, uh, facial recognition, uh, that's a tempest in a teapot uh, a red herring because every time you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles or get your health card picture taken, uh, you know that's gone. That's gone in, in, into the internet. Uh, medical records, uh, kiss them goodbye. Uh, tax filings, uh, you know, they know everything about you. All right. Good point, Tony. Uh, Mark, uh, your response. Facial recognition is a tempest in a teapot. Yeah, Tony, you're, you're absolutely right, and this is the problem. Um, so, you know, what we need to do is have control over our personal information like this and, and uh, securing it, you know, especially if you go to the doctor, um, things like that. Uh, you know, your motor vehicle records should be private. Um, just, you know, they should just be in the hands of the motor vehicle department and nobody else. Um, we're going to have to take these things to courts. We're going to have to legislate. Uh, this is we're, we're ending what I call, I'm calling it the last 10 years, the Facebook era, which is this era where we got hooked on the openness of the world and we realized that that's actually not natural and it doesn't work. So we have to go step by step, you know, in hand with, you know, regulatory agencies and with private companies, and we have to start, you know, taking it back. What about Tony raised another good point, and that is about uh, uh, taxes, filing taxes online. Uh, is is that something that you would recommend? You know, uh, there is. You know, some of these, some of the stuff. There are laws about what's public and what's not. So, you know, we can't change things that are public and things that are not. So, you know, I don't see any problem with using the electronic systems of the government to file your taxes. That's a convenience. Um, I don't see any evidence that, that that stuff is being misused. And frankly, 
I don't see any evidence that if you don't do it, that it doesn't get up there electronically anyhow. What do you think the government does with it? Of course, the government is logging that into a computer. It's all programmed. It's all going to the same place. So, you know, in that case, just use the convenience. All right. Uh, I don't have a name up on the computer. Oh, it's Danny. Danny's on the line. No, I'm being waved off. We don't have Danny. Okay. Um, so what do you think the Internet is going to look like? In It's not just the Internet, but... Uh, for the lack of a better term, let's let's talk about the internet. What do you think it's going to look like in in ten years? Is it are you are, are you positive uh, about the future or are you are you pessimistic? Oh, you'll love this. You'll love this. There's two there's two trends I think that are going to come. Um, first of all, we're in the we're in the cloud era where, where everything's going up to the cloud. You know, we're storing all our documents. Everything's going up to the cloud. I predict that we're going to come back to the anti-cloud era because of this privacy thing. And, you know, while some people are getting away from storing too much on their home computers and we've gotten rid of a lot of home computers and people think it's all going mobile, I think that there's going to be about five years going to be a backlash and we're going to go back to big storage devices in our homes to protect our computers and our files and our documents so that they're not all up in the cloud. And also we are about to enter the era of robots. So, which is a little bit different than the Internet, but we are about to enter the era of functioning robots in our homes five years from now, ten years for sure, where I, you can walk in your house and say, make me a grilled cheese sandwich, and a robot is going to do it. All right. Well, uh, it's back to the future in some, in some ways. As you say, we'll have portable storage devices back in our homes. Uh, good to end it on a positive note. And, Mark, I really appreciate your time. Again, uh, give us the website, and if there's a, a 1-800 number or a one eight 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 number, so it's scruples.com, that's S-G-R-O-U-P-L-E-S.com. Go there, register, bring your family, bring your friends. You know, this is where privacy matters and where social media is exciting and fun. It's a great full-featured site. Uh, if, if anybody wants to reach me, they can go ahead and send an email to me at mark, M-A-R-K, at scruples.com. Um, and remember, you know, practice safe sharing, have fun online, uh, and, you know, let's revolutionize social media. Mark Weinstein, really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. My pleasure. Mark Weinstein, CEO and founder of the social network company called Scruples.com. And my website, the portal to The Conspiracy Show, is richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. Don't forget to register. Up on the top uh, left-hand side of the, uh, the homepage, there's a sign up and log on button. Click on there. And once you do register, you'll gain access to exclusive member content, including audio from previous shows, which we're slowly sort of bringing up to speed. We've got about uh, three or four months' worth now of, 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 of audio from previous shows. And once I get to that 500 subscription level, I'll start cranking out that uh, weekly newsletter. All right. And as always, of course, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, and follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Auto Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello, dear friends. As always, my wish for you is wherever you may be, you are safe and dry and warm and well-fed. Thanks for allowing me into your homes and your heads, and as always, thank you for your ears and your voices. Now, uh, I want to immediately draw your attention to a, a huge event that's uh, uh, coming to Toronto, and uh, I'm uh, involved in a certain capacity. Uh, for all of you Jim Mars fans out there, and I know you are legion, and for good reason. I mean, this legendary investigative journalist, perennial New York Times best-selling author, uh, rule by secrecy, alien agenda. Uh, he's really the <clears throat> the granddaddy, if you will, of um, I hate to use this term, a conspiracy uh, genre, or com- you know, the conspiracy community, because there is no community per se. But uh, I know that many, many, many of you are big Jim Mars fans. He's coming to Toronto for the first time, and. Well, would be the first to admit it. It might be the last. Uh, he's, you know, he's getting on, and he's not. He's in good health, but he's not someone that likes to travel a lot. Uh, but he is coming to Toronto, June the twenty second, uh, and he's being brought here uh, by our good friends Patrick and Kadena at Conspiracy Culture. So at the Bloor Cinema, uh, he'll be on stage, and uh, he's going to be delivering a. Um, one of those talks that I'm, I'm quite confident is just going to leave you gobsmacked. Uh, and I'm going to be uh, introducing Jim and, and uh, perhaps conversing a little bit with him on stage, maybe uh, conducting sort of a, an interview with Jim on stage. That's at the Bloor Cinema. It's in the afternoon. Ticket information, go to conspiracyculture.com. Uh, in fact, I've got a, a banner ad uh, on my website, richardserrett.com, and it's a rotating sort of slideshow. When you see Jim Mars live in Toronto, just click on that. That'll take you to Conspiracy Culture. There's a, several ways of purchasing. Don't want to miss out on this. Tickets will go fast. Here's the, the really cool thing. After the, uh, the talk at the Bloor Cinema, Sunday, June 22nd, we're all going to convene across the road at the Popper Pub. Imagine that. You get to hoist a few jars with the legendary Jim Mars up close and in person. All right, so... Get thee to Conspiracy Culture uh, as soon as you can. Conspiracyculture.com. Get your tickets. That's Sunday, June 22nd. Jim Mars live in Toronto, his very first Canadian appearance. All right. Another big event uh, coming to Toronto that I've just learned about. It's uh, happening later this summer. Uh, And it's called E.T. Let's Talk UFO Retreat. It's going to take place, as I say, in August, just west of uh, where I'm perched right now in Toronto, out in uh, Bolton. Uh, Ontario. And uh, a gentleman that's uh, very much involved with that uh, is going to join us on the line in just a few moments. He's a uh, a civil rights lawyer of some renown who's been involved in, I mean, you name some of the landmark uh, cases uh, of the latter 20th century. The Pentagon Papers, Watergate, Karen Silkwood, uh, on and on it goes, Wounded Knee, uh, he's been really at the center, at the forefront of those cases. Uh, Daniel Sheehan, who is a Harvard College, Harvard Law School, and Harvard Divinity School trained constitutional litigational and appellate attorney, is going to be with us uh, to talk about civil rights. Well, maybe in part, but he's going to be here to talk about ETs, UFOs, and uncovering some pretty chilling documents in the Library of Congress. Uh, and he'll tell us more about uh, ET Let's Talk. 
when he comes to Toronto later this summer. Uh, someone else who's uh, involved uh, deeply in the UFO disclosure movement. He's a good friend, and he uh, joins us from time to time on The Conspiracy Show. My good friend, Victor Vigiani, has darkened our doorway once again. Hey, Victor, how are you? Just fine, and it's great to be with you this evening, Richard. Uh, just in advance of mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Sheehan, who yep. will join us uh, in just a few moments, uh, just explain a little bit about this uh, E.T. Let's Talk UFO retreat. Well, it's, it's, it's a very, um, I guess, challenging enterprise that uh, a group uh, here in Toronto has taken on. And what they're going to do is hold a retreat, a, a, a three-day retreat, uh, north of Toronto in Bolton. Um, and it's, it's a, sort of a, uh, a, a retreat that's going to be not necessarily dealing with just the UFO ET contact um, issue, but it, it, with, with other aspects of it, it's not just uh, just you know, sightings in the sky. It's about where the 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 ET issue is really going, and uh, this UFOContact.com/slash/retreat, and just Google that. You'll be able to find out um, how you can spend a couple of days up north in Toronto with a group of people that will be explaining. Um, what the UFO issue is all about. And Daniel Sheehan, the, the one person that we'll be interviewing, talk uh, about in a few minutes, uh, will be, be talking with other people too. So that uh, it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very different kind of um, venture that, uh, that they're taking on. All right. Uh, well, having said that, let's bring uh, Daniel Sheehan into the program. Uh, Daniel, as I said, is a Harvard College, Harvard Law School, and Harvard Divinity School trained constitutional litigation and appellate attorney. Quite a mouthful, but it's quite a resume. Over the past 44 years, Dan's work as, an, as a federal civil rights attorney, author, public speaker, college and law school educator has helped expose the structural sources of injustice in our country and around the world. He's protected the fundamental and inalienable rights of our world's citizens and has uh, elucidated a compelling and inspiring vision for the future direction of our human family. His dedication to this vision and his work have placed him at the center of many of the most important legal cases and social movements of our generation, including, as I mentioned earlier, the Pentagon Papers, Watergate, Karen Silkwood, Three Mile Island, the Wounded Knee Occupation, and others. He also served as legal counsel to Dr. John Mack, the chair of the Department of Clinical Psychology at Harvard Medical School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Mack, of course, was a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer who, utilizing the scientific methods of medical psychology, conducted extensive research into the phenomenon of alien abduction. In 1977, Dan served as a special counsel to the United States Library of Congress investigation into the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence that had been expressly requested by then-President Jimmy Carter. Following this work, Dan was invited to present a three-hour closed-door seminar on the theological implications of our contact with ETs to top 50 scientists assigned to the SETI project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Given these experiences, Dan was in a unique position to handle legal issues surrounding the extraterrestrial intelligence debate. In 2001, Dan was invited to serve as a general counsel to the Disclosure Project, which coordinated the sworn testimony before staff members of the United States Congress by former U.S. military officers, Federal Aviation Administration officials, and NASA employees attesting to their own direct personal knowledge of government information confirming the UFO phenomenon 
and the belief on the part of important agencies of our government in the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. Quite a resume, quite a man. Daniel Sheehan, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you, Richard. I'm glad to be here. And uh, say hello, of course, to our mutual colleague, uh, Victor Vigiani. Hey, Victor. How are you? Good to talk to you, Danny. Talk to you again. Daniel, uh, uh, quite a resume. And uh, what jumps immediately to mind is how these two areas sort of intersect. And I'm talking about civil rights uh, and the UFO ET issue. Can you bring that into focus? What is the connection between civil rights and UFOs and ETs? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, Richard. I, I started out at Har- at Har- when I was at Harvard Law School, uh, was one of the founders of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review. And uh, I started out with my focus in, in my college career and in law school dealing with civil rights. At that time, as we recall, uh, 1967 to 1970, it was, there was a major focus on black civil rights down in the South, the, the whole desegregation of schools, the Vietnam War, and the, uh, the illegal surveillance that was being conducted by the FBI and the Central Intelligence Agency and others against people who were opposing the war. So there was, a, there was sort of a, almost a warlike atmosphere that dominated at the time. And I was one of the legal champions for the members of our generation, the baby boomer generation, that were confronting the government at that time about the lying and the deception that was going on, not only in the Vietnam War, uh, the origins of the war, the prosecution of the war, uh, all kinds of lies were being communicated to the American people and to Congress by the executive branch. And it was discovered that the executive branch was engaged in massive uh, illegal surveillance against the anti-war people and against the civil rights people. They, they were wiretapping the telephones of Dr. Martin Luther King. And then, of course, there was the overlay of the whole thing of Bobby Kennedy being assassinated just after it was sure he was going to be the Democratic nominee in 1968. There was the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, and of course it harkens back to the assassination in 1963 of President Kennedy. And our whole generation began to suspect that we were being lied to by the executive branch, and that the executive branch was engaged in some type of a deep covert operation to conduct surveillance and an attempt to neutralize the entire citizens' movement that was attempting to find out what our government was really doing, uh, why it is that they were lying to us, what the structures were of the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, the National Security Council, this entire panoply of executive branch uh, organizations and agencies that were designed to prosecute a secret war around the world against their opponents and against any American citizens who attempted to find out what it is the government was really doing. Now, that was the context of my early career, uh, and I was engaged at, on the battle lines uh, of, of that whole confrontation, and what happened is that I ended up being recruited by the United States Jesuit headquarters uh, to become their attorney, and I became the attorney for the United States Jesuit Order in 1975, and it turns out that the Jesuits, uh, even though they had a long history all the way back to 1540, of, of being involved in some very bad things with regard to the church, the Inquisition, and supporting the crusade, and lots of things that were going on. The fact is that there had been a major turn 
at the end of World War II, there was a major turn in the Jesuit order, which was the largest single order in the Catholic Church, itself being the largest single Christian denomination in the world. The Jesuits had turned on the Vatican in a major way because the Vatican had become involved at the, during World War II, as we all know, with the fascists and with the Nazis, and, uh, and with, not only with Hitler, but also with uh, Mussolini in Italy and Franco in Spain. And so the Jesuits took a position against the fascists, and so I ended up being legal counsel for the Jesuit order that had a major agenda to try to dig in to find out what the alliance was between the Nazis and the fascists and the, Fed, and the American government and intelligence community. Daniel, let me just jump in here. We've got the, the music uh, percolating up here, so let's take a, a time out, come back, continue our conversation. Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zealand News Network, in studio, Daniel Sheehan on the line, and we'll learn more about this ET Let's Talk UFO retreat coming to, uh, to town, these parts, later this summer. And also, Daniel Sheehan, what did he find about UFOs What did he find out about UFOs and ETs in the Library of Congress? Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. I realized that there was a classification above everything that I'd ever seen that has to do with this particular category. About contact with these beings that were recovered from Roswell, a living being, one particular living being that they brought to Wright-Patterson. They had to keep the being isolated when they were afraid of potential contamination. I was challenged at that point to try and determine whether or not uh, I would reveal these things everyone. I kept trying to have contact with people inside the intelligence community to say, look, if there's something that you think I ought to know, they would convince me that the American people somehow shouldn't know about this. Tell me about it, will you? Because if you're not going to tell me about it, I can tell you I'm going after it. And uh, only a couple times was I ever approached and said, stay away from these things. Well, that's not, a, that's not an answer. All right. Welcome back. Uh, Victor Vigiani in studio. He is the executive director of Zealand News Network. Of course, he joins us here in studio whenever we venture into UFO ET uh, territory, as we are doing tonight. Daniel Sheehan on the line, a civil rights uh, a lawyer, Harvard College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Divinity School, trained constitutional litigation and appellate attorney, and uh, um, really uh, has dedicated much of his life now uh, to the uh, UFO ET disclosure uh, arena, if you will. Now, Daniel, before the break, you were talking about uh, um, as a um, as a Jesuit. How I, I just arrived, arrived at Jesuit headquarters. Right, right, and trying to find the connection between uh, the Vatican and uh, Nazi right. Germany. That's right. That the that the the uh, Jesuit order had become a major anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian uh, force around the world. And they were organizing people in South America, all through uh, Central America, to oppose the major fascist regimes that were down there, the dictatorial regimes. They were all over the world. They were opposing uh, these extreme right-wing dictatorial governments. So I found myself being in a perfectly comfortable position uh, working with them. Uh, But it was in that context that I was first contacted in 1977, shortly after the election of Jimmy Carter. Uh, who, as you'll recall, 
it was was elected president after after uh, Richard Nixon resigned in 1974, and Gerald Ford was had become president as as uh, as uh, the vice president for Richard Nixon. And uh, Ford was beaten in the ni- in November 1976 election by Jimmy Carter. He came to office as not only this very kind of uh, uh, holy, uh, spiritual, loving, kind of friendly guy to kind of restore the faith of people in the presidency after the disgrace of the Richard Nixon administration and the deep unpopularity of Ford because he simply pardoned uh, Nixon for anything he had, di- had done in Watergate. Uh, and so Jimmy Carter comes into office, but in addition to being this kind of hope of the world, of a kind of a, a, a nice, honest, decent man in the presidency, turns out that lesser well-known about Jimmy Carter is the fact that he had seen a UFO when he was governor of Georgia during a particular meeting that he had. He and the other people from the meeting uh, exited the meeting and had seen a major UFO that they were all convinced was in fact a UFO. So when Carter was elected in November of 1976, in in uh, December of 1976, prior to his having be, having been inaugurated on January 21st of 1977, uh, in December of 1976, uh, before becoming officially the president, he had a meeting with the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, who at that time was George H.W. Bush. And he had been appointed to be the director of the Central Intelligence Agency by Gerald Ford uh, in 1977, and uh, uh, well, actually 1975 and 76. And the bottom line is, Jimmy Carter met with met with uh, George H. W. Bush as the head of the CIA, and said, "Look, I'm the elected president. I'm going to be inaugurated here in another few weeks. Would you brief me on the issue of extraterrestrial intelligence and UFOs?" because I happen to have seen a UFO, so I'm aware of the fact that they're real, and I'd like to have you fill me in on what's going on. And it turns out that in that meeting, George H.W. Bush said to him, uh, well, uh, look, I'd like to make a deal with you. I'd like to have you appoint me to be your director of central intelligence, and I would like to stay on as the director of central intelligence with Republican and Democratic administrations alike, just like J. Edgar Hoover stayed around for many years, uh, from one administration to another as the head of the FBI. And if you'll agree to keep me on as, as your director of central intelligence, I'll brief you on the ET issue and uh, the UFO issue. Well, Carter didn't want to appoint him to be his director of central intelligence. Uh, in fact, uh, Carter was in the process of firing 840 covert operations uh, people from the operations director to the CIA who had worked under George Bush. So he said no, and so George H.W. Bush, as the director of the CIA in December of 1976, uh, flat out refused to give President Carter the information. And he said that if you're going to be able to get this information, uh, you're going to have to have it declassified uh, in order to get it. And uh, if you're going to do that, you have there's a procedure you need to follow. You need to contact the House of Representatives, their Science and Technology Committee, and have them contact the Congressional Research Service and have the Congressional Research Service file official applications to have this information declassified so you can see it. Because, frankly, you don't have a need to know this stuff. And so uh, Carter was completely flabbergasted that this had happened. But what he did is uh, during the interim of that December, waiting through till January 21st, he took steps uh, 
to actually reach out to the House uh, House of Representatives Science and Technology Committee, ask them to have a major investigation conducted by the Congressional Research Service into these dual questions of, number one, what are the probabilities that extraterrestrial intelligence exists? Uh, and by that he meant a, a highly intelligent, highly technologically developed civilization uh, of, of sentient beings. And secondly, whether or not any of these sightings of UFOs might possibly be visitors from an extraterrestrial civilization somewhere. And so he, assigned, he, he gave that request to the Science and Technology Committee, the House of Representatives. They passed it on to the Library of Congress. Uh, and it turns out, just totally, totally coincidentally, I, at, at Jesuit headquarters, there I was as general counsel, having nothing to do at that time with the UFO issue or ET issue, any, any more than a lot of other intelligent people in the country who were very interested in it and had read a lot about it and had been following it uh, in the news and, and things. And But what happened is I was having dinner with a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, the Rosemary Chalk, who happened to be the executive secretary of the National Science uh, Foundation. And uh, she was asking me about what I thought about the issue of extraterrestrial intelligence and UFO stuff, and I told her I thought it was extremely important and a very important issue. And she said, well, look at uh, my, one of my best friends, Marcia Smith, who is the head of the Science and Technology Division of the, Con the Library of Congress, has just been given this assignment to prepare these two classified studies, one on the probability of extraterrestrial intelligence and the second one on the probability of whether any of these sightings of UFOs might possibly be a vehicle, an intelligently guided vehicle from an extraterrestrial civilization. And so uh, I'd, I'd like to have you get to meet her. And so I said, great. And so uh, within a couple of days, Marsha Smith telephoned me and asked me to meet her for lunch. I did. And she was very, very professional, very businesslike, and she said, look, as the general counsel for the United States Jesuit Order here in the United States, would you be able to possibly get access to the Vatican Library and see if anything is in the Vatican Library about what the Catholic Church believes about extraterrestrial intelligence and about the UFO issue? And so I said, well, let me check with my superiors. And so I checked with Father Bill Davis uh, and, the, and the director of the, the national headquarters, and they gave me permission to try. So I sent, sent a, an official letter from the U.S. Jesuit headquarters in Washington, D.C., to the Library of Congress. And it turns out that the director of the library, or the library of uh, the Vatican, the Vatican Library, turns out is a Jesuit. So I thought we had a pretty good chance of being able to get access to the, to the files. But it turns out, to my surprise, he said no, we couldn't have it. So I wrote him a second letter saying, look, I don't, I don't think you really understand this. This is the official United States Jesuit order, the largest of all the orders in the entire church, in the largest uh, uh, order of the Jesuits. We have ten provinces here in the United States, more than any other country. You know, we're asking for access to this information because the President of the United States would like to have it. And uh, in much to my surprise, they said no again. So I reported this to Marcia, and uh, Marcia said, uh, look, would you like to become... A, uh, a special consultant to our preparation of this study so that we can have advantage of your expertise as a you know, Harvard-trained uh, attorney to make sure we probe the evidence correctly and, and make sure that the probabilities are what we think they are with regard 
to the implications of given evidence, etc. And I said I'd be pleased to do that. And shortly later, within a month or so, uh, we we were contacted. I was contacted by Marcia again, and she said that, that look, the House of Representatives has cut out over half of the entire budget for SETI for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and we, as as members of the uh, government, employees of the government at the Library of Congress and the scientists in the SETI program are not allowed to lobby. There's a law against government officials lobbying. So would you be willing to participate with a number of the astronauts and go around to the congressional offices and ask them to put the money back into the SETI program? And so I did. And we were very successful, and all the money was restored to the, to the, uh, to the SETI program. And so the, the top scientists at SETI, uh, in response to our, my having participated in this, uh, asked if I would come out and deliver a closed-door seminar, a three-hour closed-door seminar to the top 50 scientists at SETI on the theological implications of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which was, of course, an extraordinarily interesting and important subject. And so I contacted Marcia Smith, and I said, look, uh, in order for me to prepare uh, this lecture for the, the JPL people and the SETI people, uh, would you... Would you, in the context of our trying to get information to, to compile these reports for the president, could you file an application to try to get me access to the classified section of Project Blue Book? And Marcia said, well, she didn't think they were going to give us access to that. But, uh, you know, if you don't ask, you don't, you don't ever get it. So she actually put together a formal request to give me access to the classified sections of Project Blue Book, the major classified investigation that was conducted by the United States Air Force into this issue uh, of UFOs and extraterrestrial intelligence. And much to our pleasant surprise, uh, I was granted permission. Sort of, and, and so both Marsha and I were very, very uh, surprised by this, pleasantly so. And so uh, I then prepared to get ready to go do what they asked me to do. Uh, and I went I, on a Saturday morning shortly thereafter. This would now be, we're into probably March or something like that of, 19, of 1977. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm all allowed to go over. I go over to the brand-new building. Uh, I, I remember, I guess it's called the Madison Building. It's, it's the new extension. Of the, Congre- of the Library of Congress, and there was not even anybody in it yet. It was all brand new, completely empty offices. Nobody had been assigned to this building yet. But I went over on a Saturday morning and uh, came, to the, came to the main door, and there were two suits there, these two guys, uh, obviously waiting for me because there was nobody else in the building. They checked all my identification and uh, allowed me to go through. I had my briefcase with me, and and showed them all my ID and stuff. And so in I went, and they ushered me down this big, long hallway uh, to an elevator, and I got in the elevator all by myself. They stayed up on the first floor. I went down the two or th- a couple floors and got off the elevator and found myself in this big hall. Again, nobody in the building, the entirely empty building, and looked way down the hall, and there was this uh, uh, an office down there, a room, with two other guys in suits out in front of the door, so I went all the way down the hall to the, the place, and sure enough, that's where I was supposed to go. And 
the uh, I, I in the elevator on the way down, I had just I had opened up my briefcase and taken out a yellow legal pad and put it under my arm. And so as I approached the the uh, the two men at the at the door, uh, they again checked all of my ID and, and put me up against the wall to make sure I was uh, who I said I was. And they said, "Look at uh, okay, uh, we're going to let you go on in there, but you can't take any notes, uh, and we don't know how long you're going to get." So that's that's uh, how I got in to actually see the classified portions of Project Blue Book. All right, we'll talk about uh, some of the contents uh, of those documents when we come back. Victor Vigiani will weigh in as well from Zealand News Network. Daniel Sheehan is with us, the People's Advocate, and his book, The People's Advocate, The Life and Legal History of America's Most Fearless Public Defense Lawyer. This time around, though, he's talking about ETs and UFOs. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Good morning. My name is Daniel Sheehan. I'm an attorney and I'm a 1967 graduate of Harvard College in American Government Studies and Constitutional Law and a graduate of Harvard Law School. I served as general counsel and one of the co-counsel for the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers case and became general counsel for the United States Jesuit headquarters in Washington, D.C. It was there in 1977 that I was contacted by Ms. Marcia Smith, the director of the Science and Technology Division of the Congressional Research Service. She uh, asked to meet with me and I met with her and she informed me that President Carter, upon taking office in January of 1977, held a meeting with then the director of central intelligence who was George Bush senior and demanded that the director of central intelligence turn over to the president the classified information about unidentified flying objects and the information that was in the possession of the United States intelligence community concerning the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. This information was refused to the president of the United States by the director of central intelligence George Bush senior the DCI suspected that the president was preparing to reveal this information to the American public and the secret government which is concealing this information and I am happy and proud to serve as general counsel to the disclosure project. Thank you very much. That's the uh, voice of Daniel Sheehan uh, here on The Conspiracy Show. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. And, uh, uh, Daniel, you've uh, led us by the hand down the uh, the corridors of this brand-new wing, going back 1977, brand-new wing of Library of Congress where you uh, got to, uh, to see uh, classified documents relating to the UFO ET issue. And I'll, I'll hand it over to my colleague here, Victor Vigiani. Oh. I think, Daniel, that uh, you know, what, what you discovered that day uh, was very provocative, and uh, I guess you were sort of unexpectedly confronted with some information that you really didn't expect. So what did you see when you went in there and sat down and looked at uh, the documents that you, that you saw? Well, it was interesting that the, the, room, the room that I went, got into, I, uh, they opened up, the, the door was open, I went in, uh, they took my they took my briefcase away from me. They said I had to leave my briefcase outside the room. And I wasn't allowed to take any notes, but they didn't notice apparently that I had my I had this yellow pad under my arm. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had pens inside my jacket pocket. So I, I went in and I I laid the laid the yellow pad down, uh, and there were these there were like three 
tables, uh, like big folding tables, one along the left side of the wall, one along the far side of the wall, and one along the right side of the wall. Uh, and there was a machine, one of those um, uh, overhead, um, uh, ma- those little tin machines like they have in libraries for, mm. for microfiche. Right. And, uh, and so I said, okay, so there's a microfiche machine here. So I, I went over it, and there were like shoeboxes. They were like little shoeboxes. They were kind of this off pale green color with, with little uh, strings that you un, unstring and open up these little boxes, and they were, they were filled with microfiche. Uh, so I began to take these out one at a time and put them into the machine and kind of hand-crank the machine, and I was started to try to read these. I didn't know how long I was going to get to be in there. Uh, and so I started to look through these documents and started to read them, and I said, oh, this is going to take forever trying to read these documents. Because as a lawyer, I've been trained to read very carefully and very slowly. Of course. And, and yeah. Usually taking notes on what I'm reading, et cetera. So I said, oh, this is going to take forever. What I want to do is I want to kind of breeze through a number of these microfiche things, see if I can find some pictures that will be really revealing. So I started, I must have been on about third or fourth uh, roll of the microfiche from these boxes, and I, and I was kind of taking them at random, and I, I got to about the fourth or maybe fifth roll of these microfiche, and I was cranking this microfiche thing, this old-timey <laughs> uh, tin-like machine, and, uh, and I cranked it, and all of a sudden I came upon this photograph. And it was a photograph, absolutely clearly a photograph of a UFO, and it had crashed. It was on the ground. Uh, it had clearly, there was snow on the ground in the photograph. You could see that the UFO had plowed through this field. It had hit and plowed through this field so that the, it plowed through the snow and, and dug into the dirt. The, the soil was all turned up in, uh, on the snow, and it had crashed into this embankment that was covered with snow, apparently a, a, an earthen embankment, and it had kind of uh, wedged itself in at this kind of 45-degree angle into the side of this embankment. And, uh, and there were U.S. Air Force personnel. You could see there were U.S. Air Force personnel in the photograph around the UFO. They had cameras, uh, regular photographic cameras, and I could, I could see one uh, film camera. And it was, it was uh, you know, like one of these 1950s-type uh, cameras with two great big uh, circular rolls, like on the top of it, for the film that would go down through the, the camera, and it was a, a shoulder-carried uh, camera. I could see they were taking uh, uh, film of this thing. And so I cranked into the next picture, and I could see uh, more pictures of it. There, altogether, there must have been maybe four to six uh, of these photographs uh, of, the, of this same vehicle from different angles. And I was trying to see if I could read any of the names uh, on the uh, jackets. They were in... Snow, snow jackets, the Air Force guys, like with fur around the hoods. They had the hoods up right. on them. And, yeah. uh, some of them, and I was, I was trying to see if I could pick up a name on the, any of the jackets, but it, there was, it was too small. The print, I couldn't see it. I couldn't refocus the, the overhead thing to be able to quite get to read the names on the tags. But when I, all of a sudden, I recognized that it was this, this UFO that was stuck in the side of the bank. It was classic. It was a big saucer-shaped thing. It must have been it must have been 100 feet wide, uh, and it had a, the classic dome on the top of it. And I saw out of the corner of my eye that there were these uh, symbols around the bottom of the dome uh, where it joined together with the saucer part of the craft. 
uh, and I could I could see that uh, in 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 the picture. So I tried to see if I could get a little better look at that. And that's I, I think we're coming. Are we coming we are indeed, break? indeed. So uh, that, that was where we are. That's so why I'm looking at the picture and I'm trying to see if I can get a closer look at these symbols along the base of the dome on the on the aircraft. All right, we'll take a time out. Come back, Daniel Sheehan, talking about UFO. Uh, UFOs and ETs. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you. The website, richardserrett.com. Don't forget to register. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. And on the line, uh, famed civil rights lawyer, uh, Daniel Sheehan, is uh, with us. And uh, as you were telling me this story, or us, the story, Daniel, of, of poking around in these, in these boxes in the Library of Congress, it, it, I hearken back to, uh, I guess it was 2012, when uh, we had the... Uh, that story of the senior CIA officer who claimed knowledge of a Roswell alien cover-up after going through boxes uh, in a similar fashion, and that was uh, Charles Chase Brandon. Uh, and I don't know if it was at the Library of Congress when um, when he uh, uh, uncovered this this box that was labeled, I believe, Roswell, and, and uh, he said, I absolutely know as I sit here talking to you that there was a craft from beyond this world that crashed at Roswell. Did you have... When you opened that box and you and, and and went through those microfiches and looked at those pictures, was that your your come to Jesus moment in terms of the UFO issue, if I can use that term? Well, well, what it was is that I knew I could. There wasn't any question that it was a UFO. You know, and it and it wasn't you know like a light in the sky or even a light in the sky that moves very erratically and and couldn't be any other kind of crap. This was a full-scale UFO, just like you see in the drawings. And uh, in the, this, at, at that time, of course, that's 1977, uh, and there hadn't been as many photographs as there are now with, with everybody carrying their, their, you know, their cell phones around and taking photographs. And, and Jaime Massan had those amazing photographs of the UFOs over Mexico City, et cetera. Well, this was earlier. And so, so I was flabbergasted to see that they're, they're, here's the official United States Air Force, a Project Blue Book, uh, official government files with, a, with an absolutely indisputable UFO there on the ground. And, you know, there weren't any reasons for U.S. Air Force personnel to be flooding all around this thing, taking photographs and everything else of it, if it was one of their own. Uh, and, and so, but when I, when I saw the symbols around the bottom of the dome, uh, I could tell right away that this wasn't anything, any one of ours or Russians or anything. So, so what I did is I tried to figure out how to crank up the size of the of the uh, symbols around the the base of the dome. And I I I looked around to make sure nobody was looking. I went over and got the yellow pad and I brought it over. And I opened up the yellow pad to the inside uh, of the cardboard at the very back of it. And I, I slid it under the under the overhead uh, microfiche machine, and I I focused the the size of the picture so that it kind of came, filled up the the bat, the cardboard portion of the yellow pad, the inside of it, and then I hand traced every single one of the symbols 
that I could see around, I, I could see sort of 180 degrees uh, this side of where the photograph was of the symbols around the bottom of the base of this thing. And these were not, this was not hieroglyphics, this was not Russian, it was not Chinese, it wasn't any kind of a, uh, a language of anything that I'd ever seen. Uh, these were clearly some other kinds of symbols made up of, of and I think, I, I think I've shown Victor, I, I kind of showed him because I, I've, I've gone looking for this thing. I've, mm -hmm. I've put it in, it's in my Jesuit files. I've got uh, the, with the two with the copies of the ultimate uh, the classified reports that were put out the two reports on the on the ETs in, and the uh, and the UFOs, which I, I think have later been declassified. But I have the original classified uh, mm. things in the file, uh, and so I, I I trace these things out in detail, and then I I close the the, the yellow pad up, and then I all of a sudden I said, oh wow, you know I've I've copied these things. They told me I wasn't supposed to do this. I'd better shut this thing down and get out of here now that I've got this before I get caught. And so I, I put all the microfiche back into the, into the little boxes and tied them all back up and, and put the little yellow pad under my arm and just turned around and walked out. And I walked over, and, and the guys were kind of surprised, I think, that I'd come out of there as early as I did. And, and obviously it's one of those type of things you look back on your life and you say, oh, Mac, I was, you know, I should have stayed in there until they dragged me out by my finger. Yeah, that was my first uh, thought. Why didn't you? Listen, and, and I'd like to go, I'd like to be able to spend the time with you to go through every single, you know, microfiche in, in the Library of Congress. No, no, but, no absolutely, man. What, but I, I let me... I um, myself a thousand times over that. Let me just but throw I'm it over just, to... I'm just so freaked out once I had this. Yes. Thing. I knew I had what I had. I said, I've got to get out of here before I get caught or before they try to take it away from me. And so that my coming out as soon as I did kind of took them off, off guard. They right. weren't quite ready for it. And so I just walked over and picked up my, my briefcase and, out and you started went. walking down the hall. So you, know, you, so you had your hand in the cookie jar, right? Yeah, I had the hand in cookies. And I, and I had, <laughs> yeah. I had the tracings of real cookies. So you know? so you've been there. You've been in this, this location, and you've got these, these you know, inc replications or whatever yeah. you've got. Yeah. Now, uh, what are you going to do with this stuff? I I, I know well, that I, I brought it. I brought it back, and I I went right back the, the following Monday morning. I went back to the, into the Jesuit headquarters of my office, and I went in to see Father Bill Davis, who William J. Davis, who was the director of the National Social Ministry Office of the United States Jesuit headquarters, and I showed it to him. I said, look, look what I found here. And I told him all about the photographs and exactly what was all that. Of course, he knew that I was doing all this because I'd been touching base with him to get clearance to do it all. And he looked at me kind of strangely, and he went over to his desk, and he, pulled, he opened up the drawer, and he pulled out a little envelope, and he pulled out a photograph. There was a photograph of a UFO. And I, I was kind of surprised by this, because he never said anything to me about this at all, even with the discussions I'd been having with him about this. And he said, look at this is a photograph that my sister's, my sister's husband gave to me. And he is an air controller uh, at the airport, civilian airport in Seattle, Washington. And his best friend was a, a commercial pilot who took this photograph out the window of his plane, of a UFO that was tracking them. And his best friend didn't want to get in trouble with anybody, so he, but he said he had to do something with it. So he took it and gave it to Dodie's husband, uh, who was the air traffic controller, figuring that, well, he'd sort of done his duty. He gave it to somebody official. And so Dodie uh, had given this to Father Bill Davis, figuring that, you know, tell, tell your brother who's the priest about this, and she'd done her duty. And then she doesn't have to get in trouble. 
And so, so Father Bill Davis had had this photograph sitting at his desk, so he hands me the photograph. So I know that I've got this file somewhere. I've got the file with the photograph in it of, of the, that uh, Dodie gave to Father Bill Davis. I've got the, the two copies, the copies of the, of the two reports, and I've got the, the traced drawing, the, tr- the tracings of, the, of the, uh, the UFO symbols. So I've got these, and I've, I've sicked my people on this because I've got these scrillions of files. I've got you know, files and depositions on all these cases I've been doing for 40 years, and I've got them all in this. That, well, they were in a bunch of different storage places, and when people started asking me about this, I said, gee, I'd better get all these things out of the storage places. And so I've, I've gathered all this stuff together, and I've got it way out in these, these back rooms at our offices, and I've, I've assigned my interns to try to find this thing for me. Now they found you know, old, uh, a bunch of Jesuit documents, mm-hmm. and a couple of the boxes were wet. They'd gotten wet somehow and had mildew, but they're, they're in the process of digging these out. And, uh, and I've told Victor, the, the, as soon as they find this thing, I'm going to call Victor and say, Victor, I've got it. Our people found these things, and I'm going to take them to Victor and show them to him. Well, it did. Hopefully, I'll, hopefully I'll have them by the time we get to this uh, this uh, retreat uh, uh, in at the end of August. That that would be great. I mean, it, that would attract, uh, I don't know how yeah. many people. Let's <laughs> just take a step back, Daniel, and, and just in a non-trivial way, just as a you know uh, objective solicitor yeah. uh, and, you know, <laughs> Just let's pretend it's not you, but let's suppose someone of your status has something of this ilk, of this this largesse, of this kind of information. How do you engage the legal community? I'm not talking about the UFO research community. Mm-hmm. Or how do you engage the legal community about the gravitas of what you've discovered? I mean, this to me. Well, it, this, this, this is we've got about three minutes. We've got about three minutes here. Go so. ahead. Yeah. Now, is, is that the end of it? We have only one hour total here? Correct, yeah. unfortunately, okay, yes. Okay, okay. Well, the, the bottom line is that, that that makes, that's an important question, and it falls in as a subset of the much larger question about how can you, in fact, respond as a trained attorney to dealing with something that you've discovered when you know that the whole legal system and political system doesn't want to deal with it. You know, for example, when we discovered that they were smuggling 98% pure bomb-grade plutonium out of the facility where Karen Silkwood worked, and they were smuggling it to Israel so that Israel could make uh, a nuclear weapon in complete violation of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. We knew that our Central Intelligence Agency was involved in working with a guy that was the FBI guy assigned to maintain the security over the nuclear facilities there. And we, we knew that they were up to their armpits in doing this themselves. And the guy that owned the Kermagee nuclear facility, Robert S. Kerr, was the, the United States senator from, uh, from Oklahoma and was the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. So we knew that, that what was, there was thing going on in the background, there's an entire other kind of shadow government that's functioning, and that the American people are not told about this. So we set about to try to tell people about the existence of this shadow government, this off-the-shelf government. That's why we ended up doing the Iran-Contra case in exposing the whole off-the-shelf enterprise that was flat-out lying in providing military equipment to the Contras in Central America while the President Reagan was standing up in front of everybody saying they weren't providing any weapons for them at all, and all these rumors were untrue. Mm-hmm. And so that this, this important question that you ask is a subset of the, more, of the more important question, is what does one do when one discovers one of these fundamental lies that the executive branch is communicating not only to the American people, but to Congress itself, 
what steps can you take? And there was a time when the judiciary was willing to help you out on this thing, but the fact is that now, like 63% now of all the federal judges that have been appointed have been appointed by, you know, by either leftover from Richard Nixon or Jerry Ford or one of the two Bushes or Ronald Reagan. You know, and, and uh, almost two-thirds of those are Federalist Society people mm-hmm. who are these extreme right-wing reactionaries who, who believe that the Constitution is a ship that sits in the harbor in Boston. You know, and uh, so that you, you can't get anywhere with these people. So that I've told audiences across the country now, <clears throat> and now in Canada on this show, that you can't really anticipate legitimate, objective, honest justice from the United States court system any longer. So, and you can't expect it from the Justice Department either. They won't do anything about these things because they're part of the cover-up. All right, listen, we, uh, we've got about a minute here, and I, I want to take, a, 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 take what time remains and talk about this um, uh, ET Let's Talk UFO oh, yeah. retreat. Uh, tell us a little bit about that in, in 40 yeah, seconds. Well, well, one of the things we're going to be doing, they, they've asked me to play a major role in this, and what I want to do is I'm going to lay out for people what we, what we developed at the State of the World Forum. At the, at the end of the, the Cold War, I was retained by President Gorbachev uh, to bring, help bring together uh, all the former heads of presidents and vice presidents and secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, secretaries of treasury of all the major governments of the world to bring them to the place where the U.N. was founded in San Francisco uh, and hold a whole series of meetings at the end of the Cold War to try to identify a new governing paradigm for the planet before the dialecticians could figure out some new ultimate other. And so I'm going to lay out for people here what it is that we discovered in all the conversations with these former presidents and vice presidents, etc., about the existence of a whole spectrum uh, of eight major alternative worldviews that exist in the world among our citizens. And I'll talk about how that affects the issue of the extraterrestrial intelligence and UFOs. Because what we've discovered is people think what is consistent with their worldview. And we need to explicate this for our people and figure out how we can bring people from each of these eight worldviews together to open up this issue of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay, listen. The most public policy problem in the world. This is coming uh, in in August, and we'll get more details on that. August 28th to 31st. Okay, we'll have you on the program uh, before the event, if you're good for that, Daniel. Terrific. All right. Appreciate your time. Daniel Sheehan, Victor Vigiani, thank you. Okay, thanks, everybody. Bye-bye, Danny. Uh, Thanks to uh, Damian Murray for production. Back next week with another program, uh, including uh, a fascinating new book called Police State. George Orwell's worst nightmare has come true. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show next week. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.